and excited to be there. Should have been plenty of notes today. I printed more copies this week because we ran out last week, which is great. Uh, but uh, Acts chapter 2 is where we're picking up today. Also, with the help of uh, some of the, the ladies in the church that are on the techie side of things, when I am preaching, uh, the folder with all my sermon notes is available on the live stream email. So there's a link on there. So if you prefer uh, to take notes on your tablet or something like that or pull it up on your phone, you can find it now that way. And if you are uh, you know, one of the shut-ins or others that is watching the live stream and you'd like to pull up the notes for yourself, if you're capable of doing that, there's a link there and you can pull up my notes uh, that I pass out here every Sunday. So that's the last time I'm going to say that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. Uh, but some of the gals worked very hard to make that happen. And there you have it. So you can, now the notes are digitized. There you go. We're moving into the, what century is this anyway? All right. Last time we were in the book of Acts. If you recall, we made it partway through Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It was the very first sermon ever preached in the church, and we put a lot of emphasis in that last message into the fact that preaching is the first thing we see the church doing after the Holy Spirit comes, as, God, as Jesus promised at Pentecost. Preaching plays a very pivotal role in the church. It's the heart of all that we do. It's the crux of the Great Commission. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature. Preaching is powerful. Not because of the man behind the pulpit, but because of the might of the Spirit of God. Preaching is declarative. It's authoritative. It's more than just a TED Talk or a lecture. The effective preaching of the Word of God always demands a response from the hearers. The effective preaching of the Word of God always demands a response from the hearers. The preacher is a herald. He is saying, thus saith the Lord. These are the words of the king. And the hearers either submit themselves in obedience or they reject and rebel and face ultimately the judgment of that king. This is exactly what Peter is doing on the day of Pentecost. He is declaring as the preacher that Jesus of Nazareth is the risen Christ, the exalted Son of God, and the Messiah that was promised to come. So follow along with me in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 41. It says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses." 
Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This is the message of the church. This is the message that we are engaged in. This is the purpose of gathering together as a called out assembly to preach Christ and declare his word, to equip the church to better serve him and testify him to a lost and dying world. This morning, we're going to divide the passage into two parts. We'll look at Peter's preaching and consider what exactly did he say? What did he declare in this message? And we'll also look at the response of the hearers and see what a biblical message, which is utilized by the Holy Spirit, can do. And as we do this, perhaps this morning, we could use a bit of a refresher. What are the key points of our message as Christians. What are the key points of our message as Christians? And as we look at Peter's sermon here on Pentecost, I wonder if we emphasize the same things in our witness as Peter did. I wonder if we would declare boldly the risen Savior like a herald would the message of his King. And do we understand that preaching elicits a response? Do you understand that every time you sit under the preaching of the Word of God, you should come away with a change in your heart every single time. You know, I've, I've been in college chapel, and so I know that sometimes it's difficult <laughs> to come away every single time with a change in your heart. And I can say that uh, without, any, without any guilt or regret or remorse because one of the speakers in College Chapel, verse by verse through Ecclesiastes. I got the point after the first message, everything is vanity. I got it. But he went through the whole book. And this was not a dynamic speaker. He was a great, a great teacher. I loved his classes. But he was not a great preacher. <laughs> On a tone, never moved verse by verse through Ecclesiastes, and it was all vanity. So I know, I know that sometimes it's difficult. But the fact of the matter is this, that the Holy Spirit can even the driest message preached from his word to change your heart. And every single time you and I sit under the preaching of the word of God, we should come away with a change, a challenge. Are you sensitive to the word of God like, like these people were? What shall we do? 
in response to every message that is preached? Or have you become calloused and hardened against the preaching of the Word of God? These are just some things to keep in the back of your mind as we look through this passage together. The first thing we find here as we look at Peter's message is he's preaching the risen Christ in verses 25 through 36. He's preaching the risen Christ. And for the sake of time, I won't read that whole portion again, but I want you to notice three facets of Peter's message. Three facets of his message. The first thing, like any good Baptist preacher, he starts with a text, right? He examines the scriptures. We find Peter, and in his message, it examines the scriptures in verses 25 through 28. Peter starts with a text. His whole message was founded on a passage of scripture. None of what Peter said was his opinion. It wasn't just his own eyewitness account, which definitely was playing into it as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he didn't just stand up and preach his eyewitness account. He started with a text of Scripture, and he preached from the Bible the risen Christ. And the passage that he used is found in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses six through, or 8 through 11 says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore." Peter preached from Scripture. We hold in our hands a book that speaks of Christ. It speaks expressly of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't preach a message that was invented by men or has been passed down by tradition. We preach what the Bible says, word for word, verse for verse. It's not a myth or a legend. It's not getting bigger and greater as time goes on. Jesus Christ is the very fulfillment of what the Bible says. He is the Word itself made flesh and dwelling with us. Jesus himself used the Bible to explain the necessity of his death, burial, and resurrection to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, after he rose again, he appeared unto these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he said unto them, he asked them, you know, what, what's going on? What, why are you so sad? And they were basically said, have you been living under a rock? This is not word for word. <laughs> you know. And Jesus' response is this, Luke 24, verse 25. He says, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How I would love to be able to go back and listen to that Bible study. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, Jesus says, the Bible told you exactly what would happen about me. Again and again, Jesus challenged the religious leaders, those self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, to search the scriptures. Why? Because they would find him there. John 5, in verses 45 and 46, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. 
There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And back up a little bit to verse 49, Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Bible testifies of Jesus Christ, all of it. When Philip, who had been called by Christ to follow him, took the news to Nathanael, he referred back to the scriptures, to the Bible. In John 1, verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael and says unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael, I've found the man that the Bible talks about. Our preacher here, Peter, decades later in his life, would be led by the Holy Spirit to write the second letter of Peter to the churches. We call it, you know, the second epistle of Peter. It was a letter to a church that was wrestling with false teachers and false teaching. And in that letter, Peter declares the authority and reliability of our faith. Why? Because it's based in the Bible. Look what it says at 2 Peter verse 1 or chapter 1 verses 16 through 21. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, "We have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now stop right there. I want you to notice something. Peter is literally saying here, We heard God's voice. You ever have somebody tell you, God told me? Peter said, God told us, audible voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Continue on. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter writes, We heard the audible voice of God, but we have even a more sure word than that. The same word that's existed from the very beginning, the word of God. What is your faith resting in exactly? A story? A tradition? A family custom? A conference? What is your faith resting in? A moral code of conduct? Friend, none of those things can save you and none of those things will keep you. They, they're false foundations. They'll fail. They won't bring you to the point of saving faith. You need to search the scriptures. You need to know what your Bible says. You need to get under solid and consistently scriptural teaching and preaching. And you need to run from the fads and the emotional charge productions that are held up as worship and preaching in our day. Why? Because your faith should be founded on one thing and one thing alone, the word of God. The Bible. 
the Bible long after your parents are gone and your family are gone and men of God for rise and fall, the Bible will still be there. It is the light for your feet and the lamp for your path. And your life should be saturated with the word of God. Peter, the apostle, stands up full of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and preaches from the Bible. And your God should be the God of the Bible. Your Savior should be the Savior of the Bible. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If it's not saturated with Scripture, it's not preaching. And if it's not founded in the truths of God's Word, it's not faith. Peter examines the Scriptures. And from those Scriptures, he gives evidence of the Savior evidence of the Savior. Verses 29 through 32, Peter uses Psalm 16. He applies the verses there and he explains, he explains what's there to give evidence of the claim that he was about to make, which was Jesus is that promised Messiah. And very briefly, he has three proofs that he makes from scripture. First, he says, David is dead. Folks, David is dead. He could not have been writing about himself in Psalm 16. Why? He's dead and buried. So he couldn't have been talking about himself. Therefore, he must have been prophesying of another, a promised one who would rise from the dead. David is dead. Then Peter declares, Christ has come. Christ has come. God promised David that the King of Kings, the Savior, the Messiah, would come from his descendants and his throne would be established forever. Jesus Christ of the house and lineage of David fulfilled that promise. Christ has come. Jesus came just as God had promised. He fulfilled Psalm 16 in that he rose bodily from that grave. David is dead. Christ has come. And then Peter declares, we are witnesses. These 12 apostles and the remaining group of the disciples there, remember that the church started with 120 people altogether on Pentecost. He said, we are witnesses of the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose from the grave. You know, think about this. The crowd they were preaching to remembered Jesus. They may have seen him crucified just 40 days ago. They may have been in the very same angry mob that demanded his execution. And these 120 disciples stood before this crowd in boldness and in the manifest power of the Spirit of God, declaring that that same Jesus had risen again from the dead and they were eyewitnesses of him. You know, it's a powerful thing when the body of the church stands together and declares we are witnesses of the risen Savior. We know Him. We know Him. He gives evidence of the Savior from Scripture. And then he declares that Jesus is exalted as Savior. In verses 33 through 36, he continues his presentation of Jesus as the Christ. He quotes Psalm 110, in which David wrote in verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is the passage that Peter is quoting in verses 34 through 35. 
Jesus himself brought this passage up when he was uh, talking to the religious leaders in Matthew 22. In verses 41 through 46, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. The promised Messiah, the Christ, was prophesied to be the son of David. But what they did not fully understand is he was also prophesied to be the son of God. Jesus fulfilled this promise. He was born of a virgin through the lineage of David. He was God in human flesh. He was David's son, his descendant. But at the same time as the son of God, God himself in flesh, he is also David's Lord and King. God sent his son to be the savior of the world. And once our penalty was paid in full by his shed blood on the cross, God exalted his son and proclaimed him to be the king and Lord over all. Philippians chapter 2 shows this to us. In verses 8 through 11, it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not a man who was chosen in the court of public opinion. No, actually, they reviled him and rejected him. Jesus is not a savior that gained a following by fame and fortune. He had nothing, and he was betrayed and forsaken by his followers. Followers of Jesus Christ do not follow a popular man or a skilled teacher. No, God has highly exalted him. God has given him a name above every other name. And God has made Jesus, who was crucified, Lord and Christ. It was God's purpose and plan that the world would be reconciled to him through one man and one man only, the God-man, Jesus Christ, his son. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for all, a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Through that one man, God's Son, he reconciles the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled for God, to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, 
who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ, God's perfect, sinless son, accomplished the task that God sent him to complete. He purchased our pardon from sin with his own blood, and God declared him to be the one and only Lord and Savior of all. Peter preaches the risen Christ. By the way, do you know him as your Lord and Savior? And then also we see his preaching provoking a response of the crowd. Provoking a response of the crowd. When they heard this, it says, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? There's six things about their response. First of all, we see the Spirit's conviction. The Spirit's conviction. The Word of God is preached the Spirit works conviction in hearts. That's the promise that Jesus gave regarding the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, verse 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus had just declared that these people had crucified their Messiah. It was for their sins and with their approval that he went to that cross. And they were pierced in their hearts with the truth of the word of God. One author wrote that the thought of pricked in the heart is of being broken hearted and standing under conviction of sin. They took the preaching personally. They understood their guilt. They were burdened by it. Say what you will about the coldness of the mob that stood and declared, crucify him, crucify him. Not long after that, there were members of that same mob that were horrified by what they had done. They were pricked in their heart. They had hearts tender enough that the Spirit of God worked in their hearts through the preaching of the Word of God. When's the last time, by the way, as a Christian, that you allowed the Spirit of God to pierce your heart with the truth? When was the last time you sat under a sermon and thought, I am guilty of that very sin. That's me. And you felt the weight of your guilt and conviction for your sin. When's the last time that the conviction of the Spirit changed you and cleansed you and conformed you into the image of Christ? Because it's a very deadly thing to harden your heart against the Spirit of God. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Take heed, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold uh, the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Do you feel the Spirit's conviction? Are you tender-hearted at the preaching of the Word of God? Or have you been hardening your heart against God's voice? The spirit of conviction comes upon these people, and then we hear their searching cry. In their guilt and in their grief, they cried out, What should we do? Preaching brings you to a point of decision. And these people needed to know, How can we rid ourselves of this shame and this guilt that we have? There's a whole world out there who seldom ever considers their guilt and their sin. 
They seldom consider who God is and what he requires of them. They seldom ponder what life is like after death or what eternity will be. We as a nation are more illiterate of Scripture than we ever have been. Don't be surprised if you ask a person, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And they look at you like they have no idea what you're talking about. Because the majority of people in our culture and our society do not think about life after death. They don't think about it. It never occurs to them. They've never heard of such a thing in the moment. They, ne they need to hear the gospel message in order to come under the conviction of the Spirit and be brought to a point where they cry out for the answer, which is Jesus Christ. Don't buy in to this lazy nonsense of lifestyle evangelism. It's a lie of the devil that if I live righteously enough, people will knock down my door demanding I lead them to Jesus. That doesn't line up with what the Word of God says. It was not until the Word of God was preached that these people said, what shall we do? And we must preach the gospel of Christ ourselves. Romans 10 makes that abundantly clear in verse 13. We love this verse. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And verse 17 goes on to say, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They cried out because they heard the word of God preached. They felt the weight and the guilt of their sin. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter gives them the Savior's command. He says unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's the very same message that Jesus himself preached. In Matthew 4, verse 17, it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message is very simple. Sinners must repent. Sinners must repent. That word indicates a change of direction in a person's life. It's not just a mental change or attitude or just a feeling of remorse. It signifies a turning away from sin. A.T. Robinson amplifies that concept in the passage. He says, change your mind in your life. Turn right around and do it now. You crucified this Jesus. Now crown him in your hearts as Lord and Christ. And another author said that repentance is such a virtuous alteration of the mind and purpose as begets a like virtuous change in life and practice. Change your mind about Jesus. Change your mind about who he is. Declare him Lord and Savior and cry out to him for salvation. And the word of God promises you will have it. Then in following the commission of Christ, all those that declared Christ as their Savior and put their faith in Him were to follow Him in believer's baptism. Some like to use this verse to declare that baptism is necessary for salvation, but that's, that's just plain wrong. It's simply an example of pulling one phrase out of Scripture and ignoring the rest of the Bible. Why? Well, you study your Bible and you'll find baptism always follows belief. 
every time. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward transformation. And although baptism is a significant act of obedience to Christ, it does not at all contribute to salvation. All of that was finished by Christ on the cross. What did he say? It is finished, if there was still one more step for you to take, by the way. And why would he tell the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise? The man had no hope of ever being baptized. And also these people asked, what shall we do? It's different than the question you find later on in the book of Acts. They didn't say, what shall we do to be saved? They said, what shall we do? Peter includes the whole list. Well, you need to get, believe on Christ, be baptized, join the church, you know, start tithing. You know, <laughs> he didn't go that far. But Peter just naturally responds, baptism always follows salvation in Scripture. Almost always, immediately on the very same day, in the very same moment. And that's what happens here in the book of Acts. It's natural that Peter would say, repent and be baptized. It's not a proof for the necessity of baptism in order to be saved. But we got into the weeds there, so forget all of that. Study it on your own. The scope of the call. Peter says, you need to repent. That's the point. Repent. Put your faith in Jesus. And then notice what he says in verse 39. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What is Peter saying? The gospel is for any and all who will believe. Jew or Gentile, all can come to Christ. I don't have time to go through it. One of my favorite passages is Ephesians chapter 2. The whole first half of the book of Ephesians is dedicated to the fact that there is no such thing as Jew, Gentile, bond, free. There are, we are all one in Jesus Christ. God has taken away all the divisions because all of us come to salvation in the same way by putting our faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. Revelation 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. It's for you, it's for your children, it's for those that are far. Whosoever will may come. That's the scope of the call. And then notice, just as an observation, that the sermon continues in verse 40. It says, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. I just wanted you to notice Peter was not done yet. He preached a lot longer than what we have here in the book of Acts. This was not the end of his message. It's also interesting to note, as Warren Wearsby points out, that the apostles continued to share the word and urge the people to trust Christ. They looked on the nation of Israel as a crooked generation that was under condemnation. Actually, the nation would have about 40 years before Rome would come and destroy the city and the temple and scatter the people. History was repeating itself. During the 40 years in the wilderness, the new generation was separated from the older generation that rebelled against God. Now, God would give his people another 40 years of grace and on that day, 3,000 people repented, believed, and were saved. The sermon continues, but most importantly, the sinners are converted in verse 41. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000.
3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. The Holy Spirit is powerful, powerful, incapable. And in one day, 3,000 people trusted Christ. They repented of their sins, put their faith in Christ, and publicly professed their faith in Him by baptism. Have you ever put your faith in Christ as your Savior? He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. We all stand guilty before a righteous and holy God, but Christ has taken our punishment. Have you ever put your faith in Him? Why not? 3,000 people got saved that day. What's kept you from putting your faith in Christ alone? None of us is guaranteed another chance. All of us need to call on Christ while we still can. Isaiah 55 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And for those of us that do know for sure that our sins are forgiven, because we placed our faith in Christ, do you believe that the gospel and the Holy Spirit are still as powerful and effective today? What do you suppose the difference is between then and now? Ah, uh, you know, we're no longer a Christian nation. <laughs> Neither was Israel. Perhaps we're not as bold in our witness as these disciples were. Perhaps the church hasn't been declaring the gospel as we've been commanded to. Perhaps if we were more faithful in our preaching, we would see more people trust in Christ. Perhaps if we believed that the power of the gospel was a real thing and we expected God to save people, we would be pleasantly surprised and see Him work. So what do you mean by that? I think many of us, myself included, are often just convinced, ah, they're not going to get saved. Not going to happen. It's not, yeah. And we go into the gospel witness with that mindset, nah, not a great chance here. Not going to happen. But this passage exemplifies the truth that when the gospel is preached, sinners are converted. Lives are transformed and the church is grown. If you haven't accepted that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins on the cross, if you haven't placed your faith in Him, do it. Do it today. And if you haven't been preaching the gospel, the clear, simple truth of the gospel, do that. Because the authoritative, declarative preaching of the Word of God is a very powerful thing. How powerful? It can save sinners from an eternity in hell. It can pluck people out of the path of sin. It can strengthen you and encourage you in the Lord. It can fortify your faith. Preaching is not preaching if it's not saturated in Scripture. Faith is not faith if it's not founded in Scripture. And we find here in the Bible that Christ has come. He was crucified on the cross. He rose again the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He's exalted as Lord and Savior over all. Is He your Savior? Are you sure? 
Does the Spirit still prick your heart when the Word of God is preached? Are you sensitive to Him? Do you allow Him to change you? Or are you resisting Him, knowing full well what He desires of you, but you've hardened your heart against Him? Been there. Can't tell you how many times I've gone to a, a conference or whatever where there's you know, a preacher up there, he's preaching to other preachers, and I know walking in what God is going to speak to me about. Why? Because I've been slow to respond to what the... Back, resisting, quenching. You, If you've hardened your heart against him, Today's the day you need to repent and submit to his voice and cry out and say, you know what? You're right. What shall I do? Have you shared the message of the gospel with those that God has surrounded you with? It's a message for all. It's a message for you. It's for those that are around you and you need to believe it. If you haven't done so yet, you need to receive it. And then we need to preach it, faithfully preach it. Let's bow our heads this morning as we give the invitation. I thank you for your patience. This morning, if you're sitting here, what exactly has your faith been founded in this whole time? Because if it's not founded in the simple truth of Scripture, it's not on a good foundation. And if you're not sure that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, today's the day. You know that He's drawing you right now. Jesus promised, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And he's drawing you right now through the Spirit of God. And I guarantee you, you might, there's been some, I, I had this in my last church. I had a teenager, grew up in the church, and realized one day at the end of a sermon, I'm not saved. And she put her faith in Christ and got saved that day. Been in church all of her life. And you know what? Nobody was disappointed in her. We were thrilled. We were thrilled. Don't let the fear of others, well, I've been in this church all my life, I don't want... Do you realize we would have... We would be thrilled as a people of God every time someone gets saved. Humble yourself today. If you realized, I've been putting my faith in something else, today, repent. Repent. Turn from that and turn to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you know for sure, absolutely, not a doubt in your mind, you're a Christian. But you've been wrestling with the Spirit of God. Isn't God good in that He still stays on us and He's patient with us? This morning it's time to give that thing over to Him. Whatever it is, make the change. End that relationship. Quit that habit. Get help with that thing that's just got you in bondage. Forgive that person. 
that you've had a hard time forgiving. Make that situation right that you've been running from. Start telling the truth again. I don't know what it is in your life, but you need to obey the Holy Spirit of God. Don't harden your heart. Give it to him in prayer this morning and repent. And folks, regardless of the day and age in which we live, the gospel is still powerful. The Spirit is still capable. And we need to share the gospel with somebody this week. We need to hand out a gospel tract. We need to open our mouth and testify of our Savior. He's alive. And we need to put away the excuses and put God to the test because when the gospel is preached, people do get saved. You did. So let's put God to the test. However he's leading you this morning, as we have our song of invitation, you come and you let the Holy Spirit of God have his way in your heart and life.